Glad you're here. I'm super glad to be here. I'm not always glad for men's retreats. I don't know why. Call me not manly. I'm afraid they're not going to be manly, so I'm afraid of men's retreats sometimes. But super glad to be here. I'm walking in the door tonight, and I said out loud, I'm so glad I get to be the speaker. So I'm not always glad I'm the speaker. (laughs) Usually you think it's more pressure or something like that, but I'm glad because it means... No, kind of a camaraderie thing. Uh, I have an agenda, uh, and I like it if we get to learn stuff together and then go to war together if we need to be, do stuff like that. And so I'm excited. That's what I'm saying. Glad you're here. All right. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 5. We're going to go ahead and get started. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for these men. Thank you for doing what you will do. We don't even know what you'll do, but we do know that you'll do what's good and good for your children uh, and good for your fame. And so we take great comfort in knowing uh, that you do that very thing, that you will grow us up spiritually uh, in one way or another. It's a guarantee. It's a promise. And we cling to that promise as we cling to Christ and more significantly in a sense as he clings to us. Uh, And we're thankful that you, the God of all glory and majesty, will do these things to draw attention to your greatness. Because indeed you're a great Savior, you're trustworthy, you're powerful, you're kind and gracious and merciful to us, and we're thankful for this. Uh, encourage these men, uh, and young and old, uh, this weekend, tonight in particular, and tomorrow as well. Uh, for the men who are single, encourage them. For the men who are married, encourage them and uh, take care of their, their families while they're away and have them come home Uh, all the more capable of leading in a way that would honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll look at Matthew 5 in just a second, but I just want to read one verse from Matthew 5. I won't even tell you where it is yet because I just want you to hear it. I want it to penetrate your heart by the power of the Spirit. Jesus declares these words, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is a good statement, right? Because it comes from Jesus who is a good Savior. Because it's true, it's a good statement. It's a great statement. But to us who are transgressors of God's holy law... It is a terrible, terrible statement. It's not good news. It's in the Gospel of Matthew, but it's not good news to us. As sinners, as those who don't love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, to hear Jesus Himself say, you must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect, is anything but hopeful. But if we're going to have true hope, we've got to start there. We've got to understand something about that. I know, and you can know, Jesus is speaking about the divine law, the law of God. Because if you look, I quoted Matthew 5.48, but if you look, according to the context, we know He's talking about God's law because, look at verse 20, if you would, in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew 5.20, Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness, that's a law word, okay? has to do with the law, the divine law. Unless your righteousness, your adherence to God's law, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Or how about verse 17? I'm only going to quote the first part of it now because we're focusing on the bad news to us from God's good law. Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Jesus, when He says be perfect, He's talking about perfect adherence to God's standard, which would be perfect righteousness. And it is awful and it is terrible. Not in and of itself, but to us. Because we don't adhere to it. So let's be clear. 
in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus doesn't show up as, as some have said, the kinder, gentler Moses. He's a Moses figure. Yes, that's, that's totally true. You can see that there. He's in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, there's all kinds of connections. But he's not the kinder and gentler Moses. If anything, he puts a, a sharper point on it. And we're not going to read them right now. Maybe we should, but we're not going to. But even in Jesus' statements in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And he says things like, don't commit adultery. Jesus isn't saying it's okay to commit adultery. He said, you've heard it said, that would be true. But I say to you, Jesus says, if you look on a woman with lust, you're guilty. That's what I mean by putting a sharper point on it. He's not revising it, but he's making sure, he's making it clear to men like you and like me, it's not just doing the external that'll get you in. It was never that way, but Jesus has to, you know, sort of have this moment of this is a football. But I say to you, to be clear, is what he's saying. Perfect righteousness. Now, you can see, you can see why people don't like the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> okay, You can see why people want to say, well, that's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, but that doesn't apply to us. I mean, I'm pretty sympathetic to that right about now. <laughs> right? I mean, I can, I, I can, I can say, I kind of like that view. <laughs> I kind of like the view that says, well, that has to do with a, a different dispensation. It's not relevant in my life. I think that's a wrong view. But I can have some sympathy toward it. Let's look at another passage to be clear. Maybe, maybe, that, maybe you do think the Sermon on the Mount is not applicable to us. Okay. But in principle, the truth still stands. How about Luke chapter 10? If you turn to Luke 10, we looked at this not too long ago uh, at OBC. We'll look at it today. We'll look at it tomorrow. And by the way, so you kind of know where I'm headed. Mini message tonight. And then I've got a list of 10 motivators because I want to motivate you to, to learn more about and sort through and work through this issue of law and gospel and how they relate, how they're different, how they're both important. Uh, I want to I get you motivated. But first, I want to start with a clear law gospel text so that we can see how important the issue is. Okay? So how about Luke chapter 10, verse 25? We're going to see Jesus is going to say the, the same kind of thing. Um, in principle. How about verse 25? And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, okay, expert in, in Old Testament law is what is meant by lawyer here. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Verse 27. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. 28 says, and he said to him, Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. How do we know that he's talking about eternal life? Because it says, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Do this and you will live. Eternal life. So as long as you perfectly have loved God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved your neighbor as yourself, you're in. That's good news. It's actually not good news to sinners. It's true. It's law. It's important. But it's not good news. It's terrible news to us. But it does help us to see our terrible, in a good sense, need for a Savior. Do this and live. We need to refer to this again and again throughout the weekend. Um, and, and theologians do this. And it's the do this and live principle. It's from the Old Testament. Okay? But Jesus uses, uses it in the New. And Paul uses it in the New as well. We'll see tomorrow in Romans 10. The do this and live principle. It's a truism. It's true. If you obey the law perfectly, you're in. 
God's standard is obey the law perfectly. It always has been, always will be. It's just not good news to us. But let's remember the do this and live principle. Now there's another objection. Oh, I already I let the cat out of the bag. Another objection would be, well, that, that's fine. That's what Jesus taught. But surely the Apostle Paul, the Apostle of Grace, didn't teach this. Now, I kind of like it. I kind of want to go there because I don't want to admit I'm such a sinner. I kind of like that view. Not really. I hate that view because I think it's wrong. Because I think Paul teaches the same thing Jesus teaches. Okay? So, for example, let's go ahead and look at Romans chapter 2. We're going to get to good news, I promise. I was talking to my wife about just what I'm going to do, what I'm going to talk about, law, gospel, and she's like, they've already heard all that before. <laughs> I said, it's true, because this is how I preach. But throughout the weekend, hopefully you'll at least understand that not everybody thinks this way and it's controversial and it's important and it's vital and it's going to help you read your Bible better and maybe kind of see what's behind door number one. I mean, just, it'll be helpful, I promise. Um, but I hope it doesn't sound very new. Um, okay, how about Paul? Romans 2.13. And I, th I think we'll come back to this, but just for now, let's just see. Romans 2.13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. It's not enough just to hear the law. The Jews kind of thought that way. We have the law. We know what it says. And Paul's making it clear, it's not enough just to hear. You have to be a doer of the law to be justified. You have to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself to be justified. To be declared righteous and therefore acceptable to God. Paul, Paul teaches the same thing. With a big point on it, just like Jesus. Again, not good news. I don't. I wrote in my notes. Don't say too much about this here because we're going to focus on it on Saturday. Okay. But do notice notice the logic of verse thirteen. I mean, it's super logical. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but doers of the law who will be justified. Well, that I mean, if justified means declared righteous, I mean that that's just a super logical statement, right? Not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be declared righteous. See? Because that's what justified means, declared righteous. God is not going to declare the unrighteous righteous. According to the logic here. This is pre-gospel. Pre, before we introduce Jesus into the equation. That would be illogical. That, that would be unjust. He, he would be a corrupt judge if he looked at unrighteous people and said, I'm going to say you're righteous based upon nothing, just because. In principle, that would be wrong. Apart from a substitute, we're going to get there, we're going to get to the gospel. But he's just making a logical statement. You don't say something is righteous if it's not. Therefore, we need to be righteous. Now, I keep saying this is bad news, right? Because you know where Romans goes. The argument is logical. And you get to chapter 3, verse 10, and there is none righteous. There's, there, there, there's no such thing as a law keeper. Right? There's, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as somebody who's loved God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, loved their neighbor as themselves. They're, they're, it's, it's a, like I said a few weeks ago at church, it's a super short line. You know, line up over here. <laughs> but, but there is a line for it because it makes sense. Right? God has always had the same standard and there's the standard and everybody can line up over there. It's just a short line. It's terrible. So, guys, what we're talking about is we're talking about law, right? The crushing power, the throat-slitting effect of God's good law. Right? Standard of righteousness. But it's just, it's bad to us because of who we are. Now, 
the good side, right? Is Jesus the answer? It's not a trick question. <laughs> Actually, it is. <laughs> I'm a liar. <laughs> How is Jesus not the answer? Jesus isn't the answer if you mean be a good follower of Jesus, right? If WWJD is the answer, it's not the answer. Because what would Jesus do? He would keep the law, right? He would do the right thing. I mean, Jesus is a living, walking, breathing, incarnate example of law. So if anything, when you read the gospel accounts... If you're self-righteous and you don't see yourself as God sees you, you're going to say, I'll just follow Jesus and God will justify me. <laughs> you're so self-deluded it's not even funny. You've been taught that in lots of sermons and it's all about what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would be perfect and make you look terrible, right? If Jesus is the mirror, you go, oh no, right? I mean, I, I know it's in the New Testament and we call them gospels. But before it's a gospel to us, it's a terrible, damning law. You see what I'm saying? Because Jesus just always does the right thing. And you're like, this is not good, right? How would you like to be his younger brothers? Right? I mean, you'd want to be first in line in Nazareth to throw him off the cliff. <laughs> because he's the living, breathing, incarnate, perfect example. He's the living law in that sense. And it's not good news to sinners. But Jesus is the answer, right? Because he doesn't only come to be the perfect example. He is that for sure. But see, even that should drive us to desperation and say, I can't live up to my older brother. I can't do it. That's right. That's right. You need him as your substitute. You need him in your place. And that's why Matthew 5 is so awesome because in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, now we can read the whole part. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. See, gospel. Law and gospel in one verse. Gospel is good news about what Christ has done. Okay, Law would be what God requires that we do. Gospel is what God does for us through His Son Jesus. And what does He do? He not only gives Him as a good example, He gives Him as the fulfiller of it. See what I'm saying? Make sense? Both right there in the same passage. It's awesome. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 15, another relevant passage. It's close by, so I thought I would take you there. Then we'll go to one more. But in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, uh, with John the Baptist and baptism, the, the people are called to, to repent and stand before God. Jesus as a representative, not because he needs repenting, but as a representative for people who do. Uh, we read it in that context, verse 15. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Again, righteousness is a law word. So, so let's do this because God is commanding this of human beings. And Jesus says, I, 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 I need to obey. Not just externally, but even with the right heart motive, with heart, soul, mind, and strength kind of thing to fulfill it. This is divine command. I'm going to do what God requires. Maybe one more passage if you want to go there. If you don't, that's fine. Philippians chapter 3 to see Paul weigh in on this, just to, to have it be clear to us that they're teaching the exact same thing. In Philippians 3.9, it says, talking about Jesus, talking about salvation, talking about being sure of a right standing before God, it says in verse 9, and be found in Him, that is in Christ, Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, Okay? I'm not going to stand before God thinking God is going to accept me because of what I've done, because I'm a sinner, by the way. But that which comes through faith, trust, dependence in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. God, that's gospel talk, right? So Paul is not saying we don't need righteousness. We don't need law keeping. He's not saying that. He's saying we need 
pure, perfect, absolute righteousness, absolutely pure adherence to the law. And so we need righteousness, but not one I can give because I'm corrupt, according to context, but a righteousness that would come from outside, right? Theologians talk about alien righteousness because it's, it's from somewhere else. It's not from our corrupt hearts. It comes from Christ. And if you trust in Christ, his righteousness, his law keeping, his obedience, his loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving neighbor as self is credited to you. Banking terminology. And so now God can see you through that perfect work. Christ as your representative. And now God can say, I declare you righteous based upon the righteousness of another. You're acceptable to me. See? Make sense? We're going to talk about it all weekend. So I hope it makes sense. But the big issue ends up being God requires perfection. And then he doesn't change his mind and say, I'm not going to require perfection anymore. No, he then provides perfection perfection through the work of his son and so it comes to us freely by grace it didn't come to christ freely by grace by the way he paid the greatest price imaginable it didn't come from the father with no price but to us it comes freely but it is through the work of jesus okay so what we're going to do this weekend is we're going to talk about law and gospel okay what god requires good, righteous, and holy, what God provides good news to us in Christ and how we want to make sure that we, while we see them as both important, we don't blur the two, okay? We, we don't want to believe in gospel, okay? Law and gospel blurred because what you do is you ruin the law and you ruin the gospel, okay? So, so we want to keep them distinct and separate and we want to be able to read our Bibles Old and New Testament, and see that there is law in the old and gospel in the old. And there is law in the new. Lots of it. And gospel in the new. Okay? And we can read our Bibles and make sense of it. So that's kind of where we're headed. Uh, that's the mini message to kind of get us started. Um, now let's look at the list of ten motivators. Okay? If you need coffee, go get coffee. I just had the best coffee I probably could ever have tonight. I'm just ready to go. So if you need coffee, you need to get up, get up, do whatever you need to do. Um, be comfortable. This is, and I'll, I'll take questions as probably when we're done. It's probably the best way to do it. Uh, and by the way, where we're headed for the weekend, what we're going to do is tomorrow morning, uh, after we eat way too much pizza tonight and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> tomorrow morning in the first session, um, we're going to probably look at Romans 10. And then we're going to look at five crucial words that you've got to know. Um, five big objections to this whole thing. Uh, as long as I may have to move some of these things around. But anyway, then the next session, we're going to do a question and answer with the elders of the church. And uh, I'm going to ask them questions. To, I'm going to be the moderator. Uh, I'm going to prime the pump and ask them some questions related to these issues. And then you can ask any questions you want to ask. So that'll be the third session. And then after lunch, we're going to do a final session and we'll see. I, I, I may do something out of Luke chapter 18. That's what I'm planning to do. And I have a quiz. So um, <laughs> a true false quiz and it'll be for fun. Um, but just, just to make sure we're walking away with something and we've kind of digested it. And again, it's a quiz that I'm going to ask you. You don't have to answer out loud, but I want you to be thinking about this stuff, okay? Remember you used to stand in the back of the church, Walter? Residency? Uh-huh. So if Dr. Wood can listen to my sermons having stayed up for like 36 hours, uh, you guys can too. <laughs> He's older now, so I don't know if he could do it. But it used to warm my heart back at 93rd and 4th. And he'd be just get up and go stand in the back. And I'm like, poor Walt. And the preaching is terrible. He's still awake. <laughs> And, and you had that Jeep, and I thought that Jeep was so cool. I wanted a Jeep so... You still have a Jeep? Man, I wanted a Jeep so bad. Anyway. Cool. Very cool. All right. So, enough of that. Ten motivators. Let's see how we do. We might have to go kind of fast at times. 
Top ten reasons to grasp the law gospel issue. Number one, because it is a gospel-related issue. It's a gospel-related issue. I'm calling it the law gospel issue. Keeping them both as important but not blending them. Uh, It is a gospel-related issue. Because when you take God's requirement and what Christ has done, God's requirement of you and what Christ has done, and if you get that confused and you blur the two together, you're compromising the gospel, okay? Uh, We find ourselves falling under the condemnation of Galatians. Because in Galatia, the believers there are getting sucked down the the rat hole, listening to false teachers say, uh, it's Christ and what you do. And you must do these things in order for God to justify you. And Paul says, don't listen to anybody, even an apostle or an angel from heaven, if they're doing that, because they're damned if they're telling you that. Okay? So the issue wasn't their anti-supernaturalists. It wasn't their theological liberals. It wasn't that they didn't believe Jesus was raised from the dead. What's on the table in Galatians is... They believe that for God to justify you, to declare you righteous, to declare you a law keeper, it was Christ and something you do. Your obedience. Then God will justify you. That's a deal breaker. That's a huge, huge, big deal. Okay? Uh, What we want to make sure we see is, like we saw in Philippians chapter 3, it's alien righteousness that comes to us by faith, by dependence, okay? Not faithfulness, but by faith, by trust, okay? Romans chapter 5, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, right? It's that kind of stuff. It's all the work of Christ, gospel, not Christ and what we do. And as we'll see, it, it, it's, a, it's an issue that's alive and well. So it's a big deal because it's a gospel deal. It's a deal breaker kind of deal. How about Romans chapter 3, verse 28? For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. I mean, I realize that this is a no-brainer to you guys because you get this stuff. But the law gospel issue and the debate surrounding it is related to this. Okay, another motivator, okay? Number two, another reason to to care about this issue. The glory of Christ is at stake. The glory of Christ is at stake. I want to look at Philippians chapter two. um, And I would love it if you would join me, okay? If you turn to Philippians two, the glory of Christ in our salvation is at stake when we blur, if 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 we don't keep the two issues separate, okay? Here's what I mean. Jesus is called the last Adam, right? God, God deals with the human race through two representatives. First Adam, last Adam. First Corinthians 15 tells us this, right? Romans chapter 5, the federal headship of Adam, representatives, two representatives, one disobeyed and the other obeyed, okay? It's based upon a do this and live principle, okay? Adam was supposed to do this, didn't do it. And there's death, not life. And Jesus does this as a representative and there is life for him, proven in the resurrection, if you will, but he's doing it on our behalf. And so we have to keep that in our minds. Jesus, as he is exalted, highly exalted, it's because he did the work. He was obedient. He he fulfilled the law and so he's exalted. But now, here's where I'm going, if somehow it's Jesus And you have to keep your end of the deal. You have to be a good, faithful, obedient person for God to justify you. That's an attack on the work of Jesus and on the glory and fame of Jesus. So let's look at Philippians chapter 2. It's a strategic passage in this whole kind of raging debate even. Philippians 2 verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's trying to get the Philippians to be humble as Christ was humble which is not our focus right now. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. I underlined that and highlighted that because that's very Old Testament-ish. The servant representative from Isaiah. Super strong emphasis. He represents the others as the servant. 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. I emboldened and highlighted that as well, underlined that by becoming obedient. He came to do something, right? The first Adam was supposed to be obedient as a representative and he wasn't. The last Adam is obedient as a representative and it comes to our benefit, but not to our exaltation because we're not the ones who did it. It comes to his exaltation. Obedient to the point of death. That's how obedient to the, to the, to the uttermost. Even death on a cross punctuated the ultimate obedience. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's huge big deal. But if somehow it's Jesus and us, even this hair fraction amount, by our obedience, by our works, then Jesus doesn't deserve this. It's His obedience. I mean, that's the connection. Obedience, exaltation. That's reserved for Him. So when you hear someone say, you have to be obedient to the law in one way or another in order for God to justify you in one way or another, I want you to think, that's an attack on the glory of Christ. That's what I want you to think. That's motivating to me. And to connect some dots for you, if we say things like final justification, because this is how people talk, is based upon what you do. Well, justification is righteousness. So your 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 final righteousness before God is based upon what you do in some way or another. So much for the glory of Christ, His obedience, His exaltation. If it has to do with your obedience in any way, shape, or form, it's your exaltation. Houston, we have a problem, okay? And we do. We do. Number three, a third motivator. History should help us. I want you to be motivated by the fact that history should help us. Okay? Let me just, let me just remind you and kind of, you know, stir you up a little bit that you're a Protestant. Okay? <laughs> if you believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you're a Protestant. Okay? You stand in the Reformed tradition. Even if you don't like tradition, okay? It's true of you. And, and history should help us, okay? Now, sometimes we're, we're, we're arrogant historically and we think we're the first ones. And thankfully, we're not consistent with that because we still borrow from history and we just claim it as our own. That's good. I'm thankful for that. But, but it should motivate you in the sense that history should be a reminder here about this particular issue, law and gospel, Here's what I mean. You come out of dark days, okay? Medieval days, and you come out of a whole long movement where you're taught that salvation is by faithfulness, okay? Jesus and what you do, and what the priest does for you because he's a mediator, okay? And you come out of that, and it's all done in Latin, so you don't really know the scoop. And you're not supposed to read a Bible and you can't read a Bible. And you just kind of have to do this and t- take them at their word. Okay? You can never be sure. And, and here we are entrapped in Catholicism. Okay? Protestant Reformation gives people Bibles in their language. Right? It's awesome. Preaching the Bible, expository preaching at its best. At its best, there was expository preaching, and so people could understand it. But there's still a problem because the Bible's filled with commands. The New Testament is filled with laws, commands. 
the Bible, the, how can we help people? How can we disciple people? Because the Catholics are going to show them lots of verses in the Old and New Testament and it's going to confuse the pajamas off of them. How can we do this? A key discipling tool to help people, not theologians, but to help moms and daughters and dads and uncles and grandparents was to help people see the distinction between law and gospel. Let's remember that that was a historic gift given to the church so that they could be discerning, so that they could understand and say, oh, just because it's a command doesn't mean it's required for my salvation. Work salvation. Okay? Salvation has always been by grace. Old Testament, New Testament. We'll talk more about that. Romans chapter 4. God has always required perfection. He doesn't, you know, become the kinder, gentler Moses on the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, you can read the whole Bible, brand new, just coming out of Catholicism, Christian, remembering those two lenses, if you will. Law, gospel. Law is what God requires, and it's good, and you can't do it. So you need the gospel. You need Christ. That's awesome. Super helpful. It becomes a vital part of the Protestant Reformation. And we should just remember our history and be motivated by that and say, you know what, that's pretty helpful. My, my daughter, Allie, I think has recently become a Christian. And I'm telling her about law and gospel. I'm like, you know what, let me help you here. And you can see if it's truly biblical or not and examine it. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't, you know, that whole deal. But this would, this would be super helpful. Super helpful. Well, probably too much on that already, but let's... Oh, maybe one more thing about that because we're going we're gonna to get there eventually. There's so many things to cover, but... They didn't then say, the Protestant reformers, and you can do whatever you want. As they were accused of saying. As Paul was accused of saying. Right? they made it clear that works come, obedience to the law come as a result, as fruit. New life in Christ, united to Christ by faith, there is fruit that comes as a result. Okay, And sometimes we don't like to think of that as law, but they they, they talked about it as law. Especially if the law boiled down at its very basic is love God. So you even think about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is adherence to the law. Right? Love, joy, peace, patience. That's just doing what God wants you to do. We're just not used to calling it law, but in principle, that's it's law. And so the Reformers weren't saying, now you can do whatever you want to do, but it has to come as a result. It has to come after fruit. It's going to come, but don't get it mixed up because otherwise, then you're robbing from Christ. Your obedience comes as a, as a result of what Christ has done in light of, okay? It goes back to the, to the whole catechism thing with guilt, grace, and gratitude, right? Or as I always like to say, Owen used to say guilt, grace, and gratitude, okay? And it's true. The law shows you you're guilty, whether it's in the Old or New Testament. Fruit of the Spirit shows me I'm guilty, right? Guilt. Grace shows me my need for grace. I need to come to God by grace, not by my actions, because I'm smoked on my actions. And then I do actually want to do what God says out of gratitude in response to what He's done. And now I have new life. I actually can. So let's remember that from history. We better keep moving. Okay, number four. Number four, the Bible does not need to be any harder to read. That's a motivator to know about law and gospel. Because the Bible doesn't need to be any harder to read, okay? If you say the Bible's not hard, you're a liar, <laughs> okay? I mean, it's, it's hard. All these different, there are different cultures, different languages, different settings, different dates, different authors, different genres. D.A. Carson says, Jean. There's all these different genres. It sounds so sophisticated. It's a super hard book. But in another sense, it's not a hard book. Little kid can understand it. 
but it's already hard enough. Don't make it harder by blurring law and gospel. Make it easier by seeing that there's a difference. There, 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 there's a clear difference. And it's much easier to read. It's a lot more straightforward. When Ephesians says, children, obey your parents. Is that gospel or law? That's law, right? In the New Testament. But let's understand that justification is not dependent upon children obeying their parents. Or everybody would go to hell. Right? Shows us our need for Christ. And then out of gratitude, we would want to actually want to do that if we're believers. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Number five, another motivator. The well-being of believers is at stake. The well-being of believers is at stake. This could be your wife if you're married, your friends, your co-workers, yourself, your kids. The well-being of believers is at stake. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation. That's a law word, right? That's a judge word. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's none. There's not even a chance of condemnation. I, I, I need you to know that if you trust in Christ, you don't have to fear the judgment of God. Not, there's no condemnation. There, there's, there's not a chance in hell. How about that? Or heaven. No condemnation at all. As sure as the grave is empty. Right? None. It's impossible. And so, let's make it clear to people, law, good, but against us because of who we are. Gospel, good to us because of what God has done. Therefore, no condemnation. None, 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 none. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, the list goes on. No condemnation because of what Christ has done. Because He's a substitute. He's the last Adam. He fulfills the law. Done, complete, perfectly. But if you blur the law-gospel issue, there's a potential for condemnation. That's a terrible life to live. How about this? If there's a potential for condemnation, if justification, even if it's, as people like to say, your final justification, if there's a possibility that you're going to be turned away because of your actions and law-keeping, your life is awful. How about this? You should see a psychiatrist to try to deal with it. You should get all ramped up on all kinds of psychotropic drugs. Your problem is, what are you doing here? I mean, it, it, it is terrible to think about. We underestimate God's righteousness. That was the Jews' problem in Romans 10. We'll talk about it tomorrow. But I think we do this to a lot of people. I think I've done it as a pastor. I'll fall on that sword. Blurring lines between law and gospel did I say that right? Law and gospel, yeah. I, th- I lost all or something. I, that's, that's the new category. Do more, try harder, you must. And it's true. Which should show you your need for Christ. And then you rest in Him. No condemnation. Changes everything. Okay, real life application. We're going to talk about discernment, but let me give you an example. I heard a sermon. So you guys all hear sermons? Too many of them, maybe? I don't know. But we all listen to sermons, heard a sermon, and the sermon was a gospel text. It was all about, oh, from a gospel passage. All about what Christ not only has done, but what Christ does for us. Intercessor, right? Awesome hope. No commands in the passage. Okay? No law. And it's just all about Christ meant to be balm for your weary soul. You know, I failed again, blew it again. And come to church and it was one of those Sundays. It's a gospel text. Just, just 
please just remind me <laughs> that Christ claims me and, and he's my mediator and, and he's at the right hand of the Father. And it's just like, yes. But the pastor chose to utilize it as an example for us to follow. It was terrible. I was having a pretty good day. I was on sabbatical, so you know I wasn't psychologically traumatized. And I was in sermon evaluation mode once that happened. But I mean, just think about it. Think about the person who, think about yourself. Think about somebody you know. They're just hurting and, and, and feeling weak and needing encouragement and needing to be reminded of what Christ has done for them. And instead it's do more try harder a gospel text got hijacked and turned on its head and became a law text I don't even know what point we're on the well-being of others is at stake (laughs) now how about this there's a place for law right I mean I, I need to hear that here's how I'm supposed to pray I need to hear that, but I would at least prefer you give it to me in a law text. Okay? When Jesus says, here's how you should pray, that's a law text. It's good. But it's here's what you must do. Not for justification, but here's what you do as a believer. And, And it's fine for me to feel guilty if I don't do it that way. And then to be thankful that salvation is not by being a perfect adherer to praying like Jesus said. Praise God for His righteousness, right? But I'm bringing it up as an example because we we at least should see the difference. I want you to at least be discerning to see the difference and to know that there's a place for both in the right order, but not for blending them because really the well-being of believers is at stake. When Jesus says, tend my sheep, you know what? In your sphere of influence, whatever sphere that is, but we all have influence, I want you to understand the difference between law and gospel. So you can tend to, to whatever degree is in your influence, the well-being of Christ's sheep. You see what I'm saying? We'll talk more about it. Categories are so important and helpful. Martin Luther said that when Satan traumatized him, or when Satan would traumatize him, he would remind Satan of his baptism. I'm not going to do that because I don't have a Lutheran view of baptism. (laughs) But I would suggest as a Baptist, not a Lutheran, (laughs) remind remind the devil uh, of your, to use that old term, of your surety. Remind the devil of the one who is your advocate. Remind the devil of the one who is your representative. Right? Hebrews chapter 7. Get away from me. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm bad. I know I break God's law. But Christ is my advocate. He is my representative. It's done. Okay, let's keep going. Are we having fun? Man, I like talking about this stuff. I think this is strategic. You can help your family. You can help yourself. You can help other people. We got to get this one, guys. Number six. Another motivation is The fact that confusion abounds. Confusion abounds on this issue. And I'm I'm creating a bunch of problems in this room. I know I am. And my sinister heart kind of likes it. But but you're going to be discerning about this and you're going to say, this is everywhere. This is a huge problem. Confusion about this abounds. From, from, From pulpit to pew. People are confused about this. In a book called, What is New Covenant Theology? The author, who I don't know, his name is Blake White, says this, We are not, we, we New Covenant theologians. New Covenant theology is kind of a new, new system. And it's changing, so it's not monolithic. And let's not go there right now. The author writes, quote, We are not primarily about law, but love. 
right? You've been listening enough and hearing enough to go, do you have the Scooby-Doo look, right? And go, hmm? We are not primarily about law, but love. In light of what Jesus says in Luke 10, he's saying, we're not primarily about law, but law. Right? Please don't misunderstand. Law is, law is good. Love is good. But you've got to know the difference. You, you got, when he, and he's throwing rocks at another theological camp, saying those guys talk about the law all the time. We're not about law. We're about love. I'm like, what? Endorsements on the book include Tom Schreiner, Southern Seminary, Jason Meyer, Bethlehem Baptist Church, successor to John Piper. I'm not saying they believe those things. But let's be discerning about law gospel. How about this? Here's a book by Daniel Fuller. We'll probably talk more about him. Called The Unity of the Bible. Okay? And in the foreword to the book, The Unity of the Bible... The person who writes the the foreword says, second most influential book I've ever read. And the reason it is, is because he saw in this book, the unity of the Bible, that God's law stopped being at odds with the gospel. God's law stopped being at odds with the gospel. And this is for another conversation. And, I, and it made it clear to him, to use his words, that there's no such thing as the so-called covenant of works, which is the law side of it, by the way. Okay? God's law stopped being at odds with the gospel. And you could take that in a good way or take it in a bad way. He means it in what I would consider a bad way. Okay? Daniel Fuller mentored... The author of the foreword, and his name is John Piper. Okay, a denial of a law gospel distinction and a denial of a covenant of works, and they go together. We can talk about what that means later. Okay, alive and well, the issue is. How about this? Since we're into controversy tonight. John Piper says this in another place. I think that when Paul says doers of the law will be justified, it's Romans 2.13. When Paul says doers of the law will be justified, he means that there really are such people. And they are the only people who will be acquitted at the judgment. End of quotation. In my notes I wrote, Welcome to Roman Catholicism. That is a Roman Catholic view of justification if there ever was one. Confusion abounds. It's a huge issue. Okay? Charles Hodge, a Protestant from Princeton, does a much better job explaining Romans 2.13. He is not speaking of the method of justification available for sinners as revealed in the gospel, but of the principles of justice which will be applied to all who look to the law for justification. Remember what... I can't help myself. Remember what Paul's doing in in Romans. He's showing that they're none righteous. So when he's going there to chapter 3, in chapter 1, he's knocking us down. Chapter 2, he's knocking us down. First part of chapter 3, he's knocking us down to show us that justification is only by faith and only in Christ. But in principle, it's true. Romans 2.13, in principle, is true. The doers of the law will be justified. It's just a short line. There's nobody in that line. Jesus is the only one who could be in that line. But when you don't have a law gospel distinction 
Okay? And you don't have the perspective that keeps the two separate. And you really want people to do the right thing. You start saying crazy things that are actually undermining justification. I'm just baffled. I had no idea of such things. No idea. Now, we'll come back to more controversial things and I'll let it sink in and all that kind of stuff. And if I just totally made you mad, maybe that's law and it'll get you to gospel. <laughs> Guys, I mean, this is, this is just a huge big deal. Is justification sola fide Faith alone, in Christ alone, or not. If it is, it's not based upon your obedience to the law. It just, it just can't be. Those are fighting words. That's terrible. Okay? Terrible. I mean, now let's just think about the, the, the confusion. Super quick, just from no, normal Bible reading. When you read your Bible, when my daughter Allie reads her Bible, when any of us read our Bible, your wife, if you're married, uh, your friends, I mean, th- there's law all over the place. Okay? And if you don't read it in its greater context, you're not going to have hope. You're not going to see Jesus for who He is and glorify Him. So it's just a helpful tool to see it's only ever and always salvation by grace. That's why Romans 4 is so good, Right? Because he uses Abraham and David in the Old Testament. That's just how it is. Keep it straight. Old Testament, New Testament, it's the same. We want to do the right thing, but it's the fruit. Okay. So, And how about this? If you want to motivate people to do the right thing, just do it in the right way, right? Don't, don't do it in Romans 2. <laughs> That's sacred ground. Okay. Do it in Romans 6, where Paul does it. Okay, there's just a, there's a huge difference. Okay, we better keep going. Number seven, another motivator. We're getting motivated for pizza. Seven. Now I'll go super fast. Here we go. Uh, seven, another motivator. The answer to antinomianism, here are the two big words for the night. The answer to antinomianism, no law, live however you want, isn't neonomianism. So when you get home and your wife says, what did you learn? I learned about neonomianism. Don't do that, okay? This, you can go home and tell your wife and it'll be super easy. The answer to antinomianism, doing whatever we want to do, I already covered this basically, isn't let's add requirements for justification, okay? Let's come up with a new kind of extra hard law gospel kind of thing. It's been done in history, okay? We don't want to do that. That's not what Paul does. Paul doesn't safeguard and motivate people in Romans 2, Okay? He does it a different way. He does it in Romans 6, like I said before. He wants people to see, no, it's all of Christ. And you've been united to Christ by faith. Okay? Therefore, you've died. Therefore, you've been raised. And therefore, you should do the right thing. But it's an expression of gratitude because of what Christ has done and out of the power of the Spirit. Okay? But it's, it's not a new kind of law. In the 1600s, a guy named Richard Baxter okay, was a neonomian. Richard Baxter wrote a little book called The Reformed Pastor. I had to read it when I was in seminary. Some of you know that little book. And Richard Baxter was a neonomian because he was afraid if we really preach justification by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, people were going to act the wrong way. And so he had it out with John Owen. And John Owen is the reformer who said, No way, Jose. This is sacred ground. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And they went back and forth. Now, a little bit of uh, extra trivia for you. Richard Baxter also believed that the distinction between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism wasn't very great, and he was seeking to bridge the gap between the two. Well, it's no wonder he wanted to mix law with gospel. That's exactly what Rome does. Okay? So let's not try to solve the problem by creating another problem. Okay, number eight. The church's identity and mission is another motivator. The church's identity and mission. 1 Timothy 3.15 says the church is to be the pillar and support of the truth. Gospel truth in the context of 1 Timothy. Okay, so Omaha Bible Church should be the pillar upholding positively, is the way I read it, uh, upholding in a positive way and also the stability Almost the negative, keeping it safe, okay, of the truth. Well, welcome to Omaha Bible Church, men. 
I don't want to fight this battle on my own. I don't want to do all this ministry on my own or caring on my own. I want you to join the fun. And as a church, our mission and our identity had better be clear that we are for the work of Jesus in the gospel, the good news about what he has done, not what we do. Therefore, he is exalted because of his obedience, not ours. And we want to honor him by preserving that message and promoting that message. And we're not going to be able to be a very good church if we don't know the difference between the law and the gospel. And I want that to motivate you. Okay, next one. I got a great Spurgeon quote I want to give you. You guys like Spurgeon? All right, I'll quote Spurgeon. How about this? When it comes to Omaha Bible Church teaching preaching, ministry, the doctrine of the divine covenant, and he means the difference between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, law gospel, okay? The doctrine of the divine covenant lies at the root of all true theology. If we're going to be a true church, we better know true theology. It has been said that he who well understands the distinction between the covenant of works, law, and the covenant of grace, gospel, is a master of divinity. You guys are going to leave here with your MDiv degrees, okay? Masters of divinity. I am persuaded that most of the mistakes which men make concerning the doctrines of Scripture are based upon fundamental errors with regard to the covenants of law and grace. He's not the Apostle Paul, but I like what he's saying about this issue. Most problems come back to this problem. Number nine, discernment is lacking. That's another motivator. Discernment is lacking. Many people hear, they hear the law and they think it's the gospel. Right? Maybe because it's preached from a gospel account, which is filled with law and gospel. Okay? It's just discernment is lacking. I used to try to preach every sermon I preached with imperatives. Okay, I would read a gospel account. And it's a gospel text about what Jesus has done. And here are four ways you too can. My discernment was lacking. I was on the hunt for how I could turn it into a law sermon. I just didn't know the category. I didn't know what it was. Think about this. Jesus overcoming temptation in the garden. That's classic. That's easy picking. So we'll go for that one. When you read it in light of all of Scripture, in light of the, the accounts, first and foremost, it's Jesus as the last Adam. The parallel between, here's what the first Adam did, tempted by Satan, and you go through the whole rigmarole, and then we have the last Adam, the representative, and came to save his people from their sins, and, and, and he, he does the right thing. But my sinful, wicked, little, self-righteous heart is going to turn it into a law text. And maybe it's because I know your sinful heart likes law. And you want to get her done. Go do more. Try harder. Overcome temptation. Well, there are principles we can learn from Jesus. And we can, we can secondarily say, he quotes scripture. We should too. But that is the intent of the passage. Discernment is lacking. Okay? And we, we don't want to have lacking discernment. Okay. Uh, I got more, but you know, we've got to get this party started and rolling. Um, <laughs> let's go to, are we on number 10? Yeah. Oh, man. <sighs> okay, I might talk about it later. Number 10. We, I've already gone down this, this road. Many are legalists at heart. That should motivate us. Many of us are legalists at heart. But here's the deal. When it comes to legalism, we don't let the law have its teeth. Okay, We we don't let God have His righteousness. Because if we really did, none of us would be legalists. I mean, if we really came face to face like we will tomorrow in Romans 10 with with the righteousness of God, none of us would even dabble in legalism. None of us would dabble with self-righteousness because we would know that we're totally smoked. But we lower God and his standards. And then we like the legalism. Do more, try harder, give me principles, give me laws, give me things to do for favor with God. And, it, and it's just a motivator. We've got to help people see that no, in part by showing them the righteousness of God. I mean, there's something in me that wants just to preach a total law sermon. 
all law and to walk out. Right? I mean, we probably need more of that in one sense so we can see our need for the gospel. But what I'm saying here right now is we, we, we kind of like that self-righteousness legalism thing. We're kind of bent toward it. I, I kind of like, um, give, me, give, me, give me some seven principles. Give me 14 ways. Can you give me principles so I can have my best life now? That, that, that's legalism, by the way. We like it. We buy it like crazy. We just gobble it up. Instead, God says, my righteousness is unattainable by you because you're in Adam. But I'm kind and gracious. I'm the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And he has done it perfectly for you. And that just does away with our pride and exaltation. And he gives it all to him. But that's what Christianity is about. It changes everything. And now you, you, you get motivated to do the right thing out of gratitude. I belong to the family. I'm not trying to buy my way in. Okay, I have, the truck is full, okay? So, but we need to be done for now. Comments, questions, interaction. I'll stay here and talk to you all night long, all night. Okay, but pizza's at 8.30? Is that right? Okay, I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for tonight. I'm just so excited to be here and excited to be preaching and talking to these men about these vital issues. Um, Help them to be good Bereans and and be discerning and thinking about these things. Um, For those who are old in the faith, help them. For those who are brand new in the faith, help them and help all the rest of us to be thinking through and having good and biblical categories so that we might not only be helped ourselves, but that we might be able to help other people. Lord, help us to grow and to learn and to glorify you and honor you. Thank you that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Thank you that Jesus went to the cross and atoned for our sins. Thank you that Jesus did everything perfectly on our behalf so that the law might be fulfilled and so that we might not have any condemnation before you. In Jesus' name, amen.